The year is 1967. As the war in Vietnam heats up, Martin Luther King Jr. denounces U.S. involvement there, and anti-war demonstrations pop up across the country here at home. Thurgood Marshall becomes the nation's first black Supreme Court justice, but continuing discontent over racial inequality leads to riots in Detroit, Minneapolis, and Washington, D.C. And that year, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Edward Albee's A Delicate Balance, an existential drama about an affluent white family struggling to control the fears that are closing in on them and to fulfill the responsibility they have to help others. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The 1967 prize may be one of the most noteworthy in Pulitzer history, because in a way, it honors two plays, A Delicate Balance and the play that Albee had written four years earlier, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The Pulitzer jury in 1963 had voted unanimously for Virginia Woolf. Their recommendation report said the play, quote, towers over the other plays, and makes it impossible to make a second nomination. It is a slashing and penetrating work by the most eminent of our new American playwrights." But the Pulitzer board rejected that recommendation because some of its members were turned off by what, in the words of the editor of the Chicago Tribune, was a filthy play because it included profanity and overt sexual references. So the board awarded no drama prize that year. That caused the members of the jury to resign in protest. It was a symbolic gesture since new juries are selected each year, but the public resignation added to the buzz of what had already become the most talked about American play in years and what would go on to become an Oscar-winning film starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, and a revered part of the American theatrical canon. The 1967 jury was equally enthusiastic about a delicate balance. Both the New York Drama Critics Circle and the Tony Awards celebrated Harold Pinter's The Homecoming as the best play of that season. But it was a British play, and the Pulitzer jury's recommendation letter said that a delicate balance was the only play worth considering for that year's Pulitzer Prize. This time, the board listened, and it awarded Albee the first of the three Pulitzers he would win over the course of his six-decade career. Albee considered turning the prize down, but he decided to accept it because he said he felt it was important to make sure that the broader culture continued to celebrate the theater and the art of playwriting. Some theater lovers have called his 1967 win a consolation prize for the one Albee should have gotten for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But A Delicate Balance has its cheerleaders, too. Michael Billington, the longtime dean of London theater critics, has said it is his favorite of the 30 or so plays Albee wrote. Many of Albee's plays were rooted in his unhappy childhood, as the adopted son of emotionally distant parents. 
but a delicate balance takes big chunks out of his early life and plunks them right down into this play. The alcoholic but wise-cracking Aunt Claire was based on his mother's younger sister, the hapless daughter Julia on one of his cousins, and the withholding mother on the woman who raised him. Albie was born on March 12, 1928. According to the biography his friend, the late theater critic Mel Gussow, wrote, the baby's unmarried mother named him Edward before she gave him up to an adoption agency. The agency placed the baby boy with Francis and Reed Albee. Reed was an heir to the company that owned some 200 vaudeville theaters across the country. As luck would have it, he and Francis also named the boy Edward, this time after his adopted paternal grandfather. And so he would be Edward Franklin Albee III. The Albies were wealthy and lived in a big house in Larchmont, New York. But young Edward, slight in stature and sensitive in temperament, never felt at home there. A poor student, he also flunked out or was kicked out of several private schools, and he dropped out of Trinity College after failing grades there. But he'd always liked writing. He told Gussow that he wrote his first play, A Sex Farce, when he was 12, but that his mother threw it out when she discovered it. His parents thought he might put his writing skills to better use in an advertising career, and they tapped their connections to get their college dropout son a job as a copy boy in an advertising firm. But that didn't work out either. Finally, in 1949, after a fight with his father, Albee moved out of the family home to Greenwich Village. There he quickly fell in with a circle of writers and musicians, eventually forming a long relationship with the composer William Flanagan, who became his lover for more than a decade and remained his confidant until Flanagan committed suicide in 1969 at the age of 46. Albee supported himself with a small inheritance from his grandmother that gave him $25 a week, or what would be about $300 today. He supplemented that with odd jobs, including, what he said was his favorite, delivering telegrams for Western Union. But he spent most of his 20s writing poetry and some short stories, although having little success with either. Then, while visiting Flanagan, when the composer was staying at the McDowell Artist Retreat in New Hampshire, Albee met the writer Thornton Wilder, and he showed him some of his work. Wilder, who had won Pulitzers for both fiction and drama, suggested that the younger writer should try his hand at playwriting. A month before his 30th birthday, Albee sat down and wrote what would become Zoo's story. It focused on how a chance encounter between two men who meet on a bench in Central Park goes tragically awry. The one-act play was simultaneously funny and scary and entirely original. Friends and acquaintances, including Wilder, the composer Aaron Copeland, and the playwright William Inge liked the play when they read it, but no one knew what to do with it, until it made its way to a German producer who paired it with Samuel Beckett's one-act Crap's Last Take, translated both plays into German, and presented the double bill at the 1959 Berlin Festival. The next year, 
The Albie Beckett Depot Bill opened off-Broadway at the Provincetown Playhouse in Greenwich Village. Zoo Story drew mixed reviews, but they were still strong enough to mark Albie as a talent to watch in the American theater. He quickly followed up with three more one-acts, The Death of Bessie Smith, The Sandbox, and The American Plan. Then, in 1962, came his first full-length play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? He'd taken the play's title from some graffiti he'd seen scrawled on the bathroom wall of one of his favorite bars. This emotional smackdown between two academic couples during a long boozy night was not only a critical success, but a commercial one, earning back its investment in just about a month. Albee used some of his profits to fund the Playwrights Unit, a training ground for other new writers that presented workshop productions of early works by Lanford Wilson, Sam Shepard, Terence McNally, Adrian Kennedy, John Guare, A.R. Gurney, and Mark Crowley, who first tried out the boys in the band there. And, of course, Albee kept writing his own plays. The next, Tiny Alice, baffled nearly all the critics, but a delicate balance won many of them back. Its original production starred the real-life married couple Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin as the austere wife Agnes and the weak-willed husband Tobias, with Marion Seldes as their daughter, Julia. And it ran for 132 performances. A 1973 film version featured Katharine Hepburn, Paul Schofield, and Lee Remick in those roles. And 1996, a much lauded revival, directed by Gerald Gutierrez, starred Rosemary Harris and George Grizzard as Agnes and Tobias, and Elaine Stritch as the Rye Aunt Claire, a role that fit her like a glove, even though Stritch was rumored to drive the rest of the cast crazy. The production won that year's Tony for Best Revival of a Play, and Tony's for Gutierrez and Grizzard, too. The most recent Broadway revival was in 2015, with the starry casting of John Lithgow and Glenn Close as Agnes and Tobias, with Lindsay Duncan as Claire. Edward Albee would go on to win two more Pulitzers before he died in 2016 at the age of 88. We'll talk about those plays in future episodes, but I have a special treat for you right now. For the last 15 years of Albee's life, a young playwright named Jacob Holder worked as his personal assistant. Holder now serves as the executive director of the Edward F. Albee Foundation, which supports playwrights and provides residencies for them. And I'm so grateful that he agreed to talk with me about his old boss and that first Pulitzer Prize winning play. In fact, Holter was so generous with the comments he shared that this episode runs a little longer than some others have, but I think you'll agree with me that it's worth it. Hello, Jacob Holder. Welcome to All the Drama. Thank you. Good to be with you. Before we uh, talk about a delicate balance, I'd like to talk a little bit about your relationship with Edward Albee. As I understand, you were his personal assistant for about 15 years, and I wondered, would you tell us a little bit about how the two of you first met? Yeah, I was his uh, longest-term assistant, final assistant, but he started off as a titan in my head. I was a student 
the, at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, but for lack of better course, I wound up uh, in the theater department, falling in love with the idea of writing plays. And there was a coffee shop that I uh, used to visit every day. And a lot of these kinds of stories, when you look back on them, feel like bizarre, connected jokes of destiny. Uh, at the time, it just felt perfectly normal for a 20-year-old college kid to go to a coffee shop and for a barista to come over and say, oh, you're writing plays. Well, uh, do you know Edward Albee's work? I had no idea uh, who that was. And he said, well, get out of my shop right now. <laughs> go to the used bookstore. Get yourself a dollar copy of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and don't come back here until you do. So I, I went off to Michael's Books and uh, sure enough, a, a tattered paperback copy went back to my apartment, which was across the street from the coffee shop. And I read it cover to cover and I was shaken hmm. as a 20 year old with the story of people in their in their midlife uh, going through massive change and crisis. Uh, I remember thinking, it's not that I didn't realize that plays like this could be written. It's that I didn't realize plays like this could be written and allowed to be produced. Hmm. Because I had been subjected, especially in college, but I had been subjected my whole life to really unchallenging, yet mildly entertaining theater. And then all of a sudden I meet the work of Edward Albee. And after Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I grabbed the zoo story and I read the zoo story. And I, I, again, I couldn't believe it because of its consistency. I thought, how did one person write these two plays that are this mind-blowing? So anyway, that was the first leg of this bizarre journey. And it was all very fast for me. Uh, I, I, I was living in Alaska uh, at the time to make money to be going to college in Washington State. And when I went back to Alaska that summer, I managed a record store there. The high school drama teacher came in. He knew me and said, I hear you're writing plays. You should consider sending one to this theater conference in Valdez, in Valdez, Alaska, which everybody only knows because of the, an oil spill in the late 80s. And my first thought was, I have no money. I don't have the time. I, I can't be going to uh, uh, conferences of any kind right now. I've got to make money. I've got to go back to school. And I, I could not believe it when he handed me the flyer. And it was the Prince William Sound Community College, last frontier theater conference featuring Edward Albee. Huh. So when I say that it feels like jokes of destiny, it's one after another little little uh, butterfly flap effects that made me feel like, okay, if you don't follow this light, you're a fool. So I sent in three plays, and I got a phone call from them saying, uh, we had already made selections, but we want this one play of yours to be in our festival, so please come. And I, I went there. It was in 1998, and Edward was not there that year. He was busy attending a production in Europe, but I won my first playwriting award at the age of 20, got $1,000, which was a big deal, and uh, recognition, which was a bigger deal, because it told me I may as well continue doing this thing. Two years later, uh, I returned to that conference, and Edward was there. I, I basically uh, forced myself on Edward and, and prevailed upon him to, to attend my reading. And Edward was the most, always the most dutiful, thoughtful, uh, veteran, you know, elder statesman playwright uh, that I have ever encountered. He always took the time out to take young playwrights seriously. So he came to my reading and he thought uh, the play was very good. I wound up winning another award that year. And he came up to me, you know, it, it, it felt like the entire world darkened around me to tunnel vision. He said, you come over here before I never see you again. And he <laughs> told me that he wanted me to take his classes in Houston, Texas. So that took me on the next leg of my bizarre journey. And I wound up in Houston, Texas for five months. I took Edward Albee's playwriting courses. And after a summer uh, of a road trip uh, across the 48 contiguous uh, back into Alaska and uh, then back again to New York. And he had told me 
if you're ever in the area, give me a call. And I gave him a call. And I, and I was very nervous about this because now this is becoming more social rather than, uh, you know, teacher-student relationship. And I was nervous, would he even want me around anymore? And he said to me, well, if you want to come visit and have a cup of coffee, you must do it before 10 o'clock this morning as I'm <laughs> headed to Montauk for the summer. <laughs> so I got myself to his uh, loft in Tribeca. And uh, I remember that his elevator was still being constructed in that building. So I walked up five uh, flights in, uh, in late August and I was sweaty and tired and sat down on his sofa and he handed me a glass of ice water and he said, now, before we begin, my assistant of 13 years just quit. Do you want a job? I do want to get to the play, but I have to ask, what did the job entail? What did being Albie's assistant mean? I'll tell you what I thought it meant uh, when, I, when, I, when he first uh, offered it to me. I almost turned it down because I was, uh, I don't know, at that point, 21, 22 years old. I wanted to make my life uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I wanted to be a young gun in Seattle where I stood a chance. And then he told, and I asked him what the commitment would be. And he said, well, it can't be fly by night. You must give me at least six months, which to me felt like an eternity at 21 years old. But I agreed I would give it six months. And in my head, I suppose I derived it from all the Hollywood tropes. I thought I'd be trailing behind him at all the busiest airports in the world with a clipboard. Uh, rather, I had to pay for my own cell phone. <laughs> and, and I answered emails and I answered telephone calls. And where it got a lot more interesting is that I, I wound up being at least one of the first five people to ever read the next plays he ever wrote, because mm-hmm. I'm sure he had his, like, like all playwrights do, his trusted group to read new work and give him uh, as honest an opinion as you could ever give Edward Albee. But my job was to, you know, he, he wrote by hand. I am also probably... Uh, the only living person who could read any piece of writing Edward Albee wrote by hand and tell you what it said. 99% of it is with accuracy. Uh, uh, because like all good doctors and playwrights, he had a very personal, and I'll put that generously, personal handwriting. <laughs> so uh, I would type in his script. As he got to know me and I got more comfortable uh, in his sphere, he would hand me a script and say, okay, uh, please, please type this in. I'll, I'll, I'll quit the impression. Now. Please type this in. So I would you know, clear out anything else I had to do for him and start typing. And within 10 minutes, I would feel him moving closer to my office. Now, without seeing him, I would hear, I don't hear any laughter in there. <laughs> and it was, so, so, it was so sweet because he was like any other playwright, sensitive to why are my jokes not landing? I know what page you're on. I can feel how long it's been that you've been typing. And my only response was, Edward, getting your semicolons in the correct place so you don't get mad at me isn't a particularly laughing matter. (laughs) Very funny. Now, he had written A Delicate Balance before you joined him. He he wrote A Delicate Balance before I joined Planet Earth. (laughs) (laughs) So do you remember when you first read that play and what you thought of that particular play? I do. Yeah. Uh, I I read A Delicate Balance for the first time, actually, when I was in my uh, horrible dorm room at the University of Houston, actually uh, awaiting his uh, classes to begin. I came early and I I decided I was going to read all of his plays so that I I wouldn't embarrass myself. I still did, but I I made my attempt. And I think that there was a quality of A Delicate Balance. He's obviously at this point in his career in life, a slightly older man and a slightly older playwright. Uh, Mm -hmm. He wrote it... uh, what, I guess he was about 37 years old, if I'm not wrong. I, I'm, I'm 44 now, so when I look back and think he wrote that at 37, I, again, doesn't matter how many years I, I've been familiar with this play, it still stuns me. 37-year-old guy sits down and, and he tackles uh, not, not just this uh, really weighty subject, but with such 
concision, such economy. And that's the thing that I think I feel uh, after so many years with the play uh, moved by is that Edward's work in general, but with that play, has the density of the nature of being alive. It's rich, dense stuff, but it is completely all uh, essential. There's no fat on those bones. It's all strong muscle. So I sat down again at this point, you know, whatever I was, 21, 22 years old. And I'm reading uh, this story that probably in many ways, just in terms of my age, should not have, it shouldn't have meant to me. But such a simple and direct concern, the nature of being gripped by fear itself. Forget about all the million other plays or TV shows or movies where the fears that you're being confronted by are so specific to, to allow a, a specific plot to move forward. This is the nature of being gripped by fear itself. And that actually made me afraid because I didn't have anything that I could grab hold of and make sense of and therefore not be afraid of. Hmm. Everybody, doesn't matter if it's my 10-year-old daughter, it doesn't matter if it's me uh, awake in the middle of the night, everybody at some point realizes that they're afraid and they don't know why. But here you have a play that is composed of people who have spent their lives attempting to pretend that they are above and beyond the nature of being gripped by something as unspecific as fear itself, because they have their perfect life to look forward to. They have their perfect life to tend to, their perfect order, their perfect balance. And all of a sudden, uh, reality strikes, and as Agnes in the play puts it, uh, disease, the plague, enters their home. And, and, and to be a 21-year-old, and, it, and, and, and being gripped by it and getting it at that level, it, it's about as scary as it comes because you think to yourself, is this really what life is? Is this what I have to look forward to? And I suppose Edward's answer and the reason why he wrote a play like that is it is what you have to look forward to if you're not careful and if you're not paying attention. Well, you clearly weren't the only one to be gripped by it because the Pulitzer Board awarded the play the first of his three Pulitzer Prizes. But it is also famously the award that came after the board did not give the award to Virginia Woolf. And so I wonder if you have thoughts about, or if you and he talked about why you think it is that the board awarded the prize to a delicate balance and not to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Well, first of all, I'm afraid I'm going to have to correct you on that. Uh, okay. The board did award uh, the Pulitzer Prize to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The jury did, but not but I'm not sorry. the so, board. Yeah, I, I, mis I mistook the tears. So I can't speak to why a board of directors does or doesn't do anything, right? Uh, what One of the natures of how they function is uh, insular, and, and it's, it's a hermetic group. I, I think everybody knows that the idea was that they refused to allow something that was considered by many uh, to be obscene uh, should receive you know, such, a, such a venerated prize, which is uh, a horrible mistake. And, and is one, by the way, that I feel there's got to be some group of modern people who can make that, who can make that right again. Because if the jury... If the jury's job was to actually choose the play, there's not supposed to be a presiding judge to strike it down. If there is, uh, then I think it's a foolish way to run your business. I think they should they should posthumously reaward Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and let that be his first Pulitzer Prize. And everybody, uh, I, I think, who has any uh, 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 association with that play in its history would agree with that. 
So why 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 did they choose to give him uh, the prize for a delicate balance? Some people think it's a consolation. You know, mm-hmm. they they realize, and I don't even know are these the same people we're talking about. If so, then perhaps it is. Uh, we we made we made a mistake, or they made a mistake, and mm-hmm. and this is the way to to make it right. But of course, the way it's recorded uh, sort of cheapens the the point that he absolutely deserved it. I've read that he considered rejecting the prize because of what had happened with Virginia Woolf. I wonder, do you know what he thought about winning uh, the Pulitzer, particularly this first one, and if this kind of recognition mattered to him? A question like that touches, you know, you ask somebody like, like, like me, and I have both the professional and the personal relationship, and so mm-hmm. I, I, knew, I, I knew both people. Mm-hmm. You know, no, nobody at his level is just one man. You can't be, right? So, I, I, in fact, I discussed that with him because I worried, what if it ever happened to me? It didn't. But what if it did? How do you compose yourself in public? You can't, you know, if I know the man who made oatmeal in his kitchen every morning, you know, still wearing his socks and, you know, no, no shoes on, and, and that's just a funny, you know, visual memory I have, that's not for the world uh, to get to enjoy. That's just the, the couple of people mm-hmm. in his life he could do that in front of. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Edward Albee who gave amazing extemporaneous speeches and terrified most interviewers right. um, and wrote amazing plays. So there's the, the man who in public was very cool. Did he appreciate winning awards? Of course. I think he would, he would always say, it's nice to win prizes. Who wouldn't want to? But you can't let that be the fuel for your fire. You can't have that be your inspiration, nor can you let it be what gets you down. So you win a prize? Good. Hopefully you deserved it. If you didn't win the prize, move on and write your next play, irrespective of whether there's a prize out there for you. In, in private, of course he wanted to win these prizes. You know, I, 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 in fact, I remember when the goat was uh, up for uh, the Pulitzer Prize. And, and I could see the nervous tension. And I could see him checking if, if his publicist heard anything yet, etc. And when he didn't get the call, of course he was mildly down in the mouth. Did that phase him in any lasting way? No, nothing like that would touch him. Now, I knew a man who was in his 70s and 80s and and incredibly seasoned with all of this. I've seen film footage of Edward Albee in the 1960s, and it's a complete, there are tics that are very funny that I recognize, you know, the way he smiled, this odd thing he did where he would blow on his wrist for, no one could quite tell why, but little tics. So you knew it was the same man, but he was a younger guy and uh, hadn't been around the block as many times. So I, I don't know how it touched him personally. Like I said, I think it's been a long time since they rejected the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, uh, prize. I, I think that uh, should they reinstate it now, uh, he would be uh, out there uh, smiling and doing that little thing where he blows on his wrist. <laughs> Do you have a sense of how he rated a delicate balance among the many works, I guess, 30 or so plays mm-hmm. uh, that he wrote. Where, where did this one stand with him? Like any, any serious playwright, he would never rate any of his plays against each other. To him, the most important play that would need his attention would be the one he's working on right now. Of All of the other plays, well, they're, th- th- those kids have grown up to the point where they should be able to go out there on their own. And if they don't get produced as much, let's say something as far to the end of the spectrum for the sake of conversation that we could discuss, like uh, boxing quotations from Chairman Mao uh, Zedong. You're not going to see many revivals of that play. It's probably not going to be on Broadway in the next couple of years. But to the man who wrote it, that play mattered just as much as any of the other ones that he wrote. 
so I, he, he was never so self-conscious in that regard to look at the track record of a play. You know, if anything, for instance, with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, he probably felt a little saddled uh, by its fame because, you know, as he always said, he was expected to write Son of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Bride of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> and that wasn't the kind of writer he was. He was the kind of writer who, when stricken by an impulse to write something, he got fascinated and curious by it and would explore that. And sometimes uh, to the dismay of critics and some audiences. But that didn't stop him from doing it because that's the function of being a playwright. So similarly, if you work in reverse order, he would never look back at his body of work and say, well, now a delicate balance in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Those are my top plays. And, you know, if, if only, uh, you know, Seascape could, could, could wear their jackets and not look funny in them. He would just <laughs> simply say, OK, I wrote that play and now I'm moving on uh, to the next one. I'm sure he was always delighted when, uh, when, when he would have serious revivals of his work and he could see by the, the uh, nature of having them up and alive in front of him again, just how well his plays still worked. And if you read the uh, introduction to the uh, published version of A Delicate Balance, he talks about that, that he, sa he says, this play has not, has not aged. Maybe it has, it, has, it has gotten more mature, but it, has, it, it's, it hasn't aged in an ungraceful manner. And, and I think that that's the best thing any player I can hope for is that they've written something that they can sit down to 30, 40 years later uh, and say, boy, this is as though I wrote it yesterday and everyone will see it for the first time. Does the delicate balance get done regularly or is this, uh, certainly sure. Virginia Woolf does, and, but does, is this a play that gets done? Yes, absolutely it does, all, all over the world. Uh, there was a production in uh, New York, uh, I mean, uh, for me it feels like just the other day, but what was it, I guess nine years ago. There was one in uh, London not too long ago, and there probably will be uh, again in those in, in those arenas. Before we end, I want to actually circle back to the, the beginning, because one of the things I want to talk about um, that I'm not so sure that most people know is that right from the very start, Albie was supportive of other playwrights. Uh, starting back with the Playwrights Unit in the 60s, continuing with the work that your foundation does in providing residencies for writers. This is rare. So uh, can you talk about why that was so important to him to be so supportive of other playwrights? Mm. Well, I suppose that there's a personal choice that just simply is the makeup of his personality. In that regard, he was probably a deeply empathetic person. I suppose he had a great affection for two creatures on the planet, uh, all animals, uh, one that is one group of creatures, and playwrights, <laughs> them, and it's another group of creatures. Uh, if he saw a, a, a dog with a hurt paw, he'd probably want to help that dog uh, as best he could. And if he saw a playwright who needed a little bit of guidance and direction, he would want to help that playwright. It's just basic nature. But uh, in terms of professional reasons, well, he didn't allow his ego, for the most part, to get in his way and say, I, I need to make sure that I don't have future competition. So let me make sure only the, the most mediocre playwrights. Edward had to go to the theater uh, all the time. I, I would say five or six nights a week uh, and some matinees, Edward would be found uh, at the theater and, and theater of all levels. So if you're somebody who goes to a lot of theater, your great hope is that you're leaving the theater satisfied uh, the majority of the time, and probably on a selfish level, uh, he thought the only way that I'm going to achieve that 
is if I actually meet and assist young playwrights. Uh, and it, it became second nature of him to do so. And the, the most important piece of advice that Edward ever gave any young player, and I, I, I heard him do this many times, is don't write what doesn't hurt. Don't write something that's just going to amuse me. I, if you can't write that and feel the pain of what you're trying to say, then it's not going to reach any of us. And so if he met young playwrights who, 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 were, who, who tended to write from some very front-level consciousness, uh, something they thought, oh, there's a funny line, or there's a shocking scene, he would say to them, why don't you spend a little quiet time alone and see what it really means to you to have written this stuff? And if it doesn't touch you deeply, why don't you, why don't you find something inside that does? And explore that and, and invariably I would see these young playwrights uh, touched at first and then damaged in the right way later or rather as Edward once put it wounded they got the, the proper young playwright wounds and then they realized I don't want to write plays that don't matter so I think Edward did an enormous service to theater whether it has a lasting effect unfortunately that's up to uh, producers and audiences to help out with they're not pulling their their fair share of the weight these days uh, but he did his best to make sure uh, that at least the American theater had a lot of uh, uh, robust stuff in it. Well, certainly among the most <laughs> robust is uh, a delicate balance. I can't thank you enough for talking to us about it and for sharing so much uh, about the man who, who wrote it. Thank you very, very much. That was my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.